Hi, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of The Jay Davis Show. Today, my guest is Jonathan Grechan. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Founder Institute. He's a startup builder, uh, someone with amazing experience, and I can't wait for everyone to learn from him. Thanks for coming on the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Well, do you want to give people uh, a, a little bit of a bio about kind of how you got to where you are in your career? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I stumbled upon entrepreneurship, to be honest with you. I, I went through college, Villanova University, um, from the East Coast originally, and got out of college. And I, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And I think it was pretty good that I didn't choose to go down that career path at this point. But um, I, I knew that I loved writing, I loved telling stories and that kind of stuff. And literally, right out of college, I, I went into NYU. And I was going to go uh, get a, a master's in NYU. And I saw a uh, in, in a uh, Craigslist ad, right? It's Craigslist. People still using Craigslist to get jobs. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I saw a Craig. I, I saw a Craigslist ad <laughs> for a ten dollar an hour internship, and it was an online gaming company. And I like to play online games, so I, I went and uh, joined that company. And I, I honestly just kind of got in at the right time because it was a startup that was growing, and they didn't have a marketing person. And I was sort of this marketing intern. And, it just kept being, hey, like we need to do this by next week. We need to do this by tomorrow. End of business. We need to do this, right? So it was sort of the perfect environment for me to just kind of grow. And and that business, I, I ended up running all of the marketing and content there. And it was an online gaming company. And we ended up uh, selling to Real Networks in 2016. Uh, and from there, just, you know, that was my entrepreneurial education, honestly. And what I saw at that company was that we had investors and they didn't treat us very well, to be honest with you. <laughs> and yeah. it was uh, one of our board members at that company was Elon Musk, actually. And uh, one of the investors that came on board thought it'd be a good idea to replace Elon Musk with his own son, which, you know, would make a lot of sense if you're trying to get your son a job would not make a lot yeah. of sense if you're trying to build build an interesting company um but uh we got clipboards thrown at us all this kind of stuff this was 2005 2006 in new york city at, at that time new york city always the kind of startup and entrepreneurial investing environment was a little bit more like wall street oriented right a little bit less like hey let's build something it was more like hey like what are the dollars and cents here um but at that time, certainly it was still reeling from the dot-bomb crash. So all of the power was in investors' hands at that point. And uh, as a result of just this really bad experience from this, this gaming company that, that uh, me and my co-founder built, his name's Adeo Resi, we, we started a website called thefunded.com. And thefunded.com was a totally subpoena-proof place for founders to rate and review investors. And we made it subpoena proof because literally the first day we got cease and desist left and right. Um, but we built the technical specs so that as soon as somebody applied to the site and we approved them, they were assigned a random number. So we couldn't even we couldn't even tell you who somebody was once they were approved. But um, this literally led to Founder Institute because we saw the number of people who were joining this website, the funded, to rate and review venture capitalists who were not anywhere near ready to raise funding, right? It was like 90%. So we yeah. just saw this massive gap in the market where a lot of people, you know, just sort of this old school way of thinking where it's, hey, I have an idea. Now I can go pitch investors and get somebody to back my idea and then I'll be successful. 
right? That that's where Founder Institute came into play. And now, yeah, so I, I have my entrepreneurial path has honestly just been a, a little bit of luck, a little bit of circumstance, and a little bit of just trying to solve the problem of customer that I had at the time and just and just kind of following that. I love it. That's so great. And, and you know, Founder Institute has become this amazing institution. Uh, you know, has an amazing reputation. How, how did you guys go though? Uh, what was that process like to kind of discovering that idea and, and making making that shift from kind of the funded into becoming this accelerator that now has had? I can't remember. I looked it up. Five thousand startups uh, go uh, through it. Like seven thousand seven thousand okay. companies across a hundred countries. Um, they raised about two billion dollars of funding at this point and we launched this in, in 2009 thank you and it was uh, honestly it's the path that we did is the path that we preach we were just solving a problem for a customer um again with that the funded.com right we wanted to create a good place for founders to rate and review investors right because at that time investors especially in New York City, we're treating founders really, really poorly. I mean, you yeah. could go to a coffee shop and hear people talking about your deal. They were sharing information. You'd be blackballed if you said anything bad about an investor, all that kind of stuff. And so we created this website and we had to rate, we had to review every single person who wanted to apply to the website. Because honestly, the point of it wasn't to investor bash, right? That wouldn't be useful for any entrepreneur. Investors... Yeah as their job has to say no to the vast majority of pitches that they hear. So if we just had everybody on this website who got a no bashing that investor saying, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, that wouldn't, wouldn't it be a useful site for anybody. So we literally were looking at every single person who applied and saying, okay, is, has this person raised funding in the past or are they really in the process, like legitimately in the process of raising funding right now? And we were rejecting 80 to 90% of people. So we literally immediately right there saw this gap. And the first version of Founder Institute was actually called the Funded Founder Institute, which was a mouthful. So eventually we <laughs> removed the fund, the yeah. funded from it. The curriculum was crowdsourced from the members of, of the funded that had raised venture capital successfully. Yeah. We crowdsourced the whole initial version of the curriculum through them. And a lot of the mentors in the first program were through them. We incorporated in April... I believe it was 14th of uh, 2009. The first program started in late May of 2009, right? It literally, it was, it was all these kind of, you know, I don't know, the jaded things maybe you hear. It's just like launch fast, fail fast, right? It was just like, let's hear, we have a problem. Let's solve it. Let's crowdsource the curriculum. Let's get it out there. Let's launch. We found an unused classroom at, at Stanford University and we launched the program. And uh, one of the companies that came out of that first program that we ran was Udemy, which is the largest online source for, for classes. Um, so, and in, even in that first program, we didn't know how we were going to make money. We, I remember at that time, now this is 2009, right? We hired like some super expensive video crew at that first cohort because we thought we were going to make money by selling, you know, access to the videos or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we had no idea. We're just like, look, we found a problem. Let's solve it as quickly as possible and just see what happens from there. And, you know, not surprisingly, it wasn't where the, the videos were not what was valuable. It was sort of the model because after that first cohort, we had people from all around the world just ask, emailing us and saying, hey, how can I bring Founder Institute to my city? 
And we're just like, uh, I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so then we just sort of followed that. And now we had to build the infrastructure and, and, and all that. So it was, it was honestly a pretty typical, I think, startup journey where it was just, we found a problem. We solved it as fast as possible. And there were plenty of things that were screwed up and wrong, but then that opened up other opportunities. And then we just followed those and just built from there. I love it. One of, one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is I think you have uh, maybe one of the most unique views into you know seven thousand plus businesses. What are some of the commonalities that you think people would be surprised to find in successful companies? If I were to define, and this has been a topic a lot now. As we go into 2024, right, the fundraising environment, if literally, if I had a way to track accurately, if a founder and they're, let's say you're a founder, right, and you're trying to raise a, a round of funding, if you pitch 100 investors, your chances, are, you know, anecdotal, right, but it's probably, it's, it's a founder's ability to pitch, let's call it 100 people. Right. And their ability to, when you pitch 100 people, you're going to get, no matter how good you are, no matter what, you're going to get at, at least, at the very least, 80 no's. Right. At the very yeah. least. Yeah. So you're just the ability to power through that. And especially for first time founders, like that is something in our programs we really try to condition people to. It's just, look, this, this, it kind of sucks. Okay. Like yeah. this persistence. This ability, and it's, it's not just the ability to, to, to take the no and then keep going. Um, it's the ability and the understanding that getting those no's is, is literally, it's part of the process of getting to the yes. It's part of understanding, okay, I just pitched 20 people. Um, these are the things that they told me made the most sense out of my pitch. These are the things that they told me made no sense, right? And just iterating and iterating and iterating that pitch until you get those yeses. So I'd say, I think, I think everybody in entrepreneurship will acknowledge the fact that, yeah, persistence is super important, right? Yeah. But most people actually in their building companies, I don't think they acknowledge it enough because they'll get five no's and they'll be super discouraged and like being like, why am I even doing this? Nobody really cares. They don't get it. Right. But it's just, it's always this sort of lull. And it's usually around the 10 to 30 pitch range. Yeah. Right. But if you've only done 30 pitches, then that, yeah, 20% is normalized over 100. Right. So yeah. you've only done 30, you're getting like six yeses at most. And it's just, I love, yeah. It, it really does, like, I, I think it boils down to that more than anything, especially for first-time entrepreneurs. A multi-time entrepreneur is sort of understanding that's part of it, and they've just built up this like this this really, really thick skin. And not only just the thick skin, but the the understanding that, okay, they said no, whatever. I really like this person. I admire their work. They don't want to work with me. That's cool. But how do I get learning from what they just said to me in order to make my pitch better for the next the next one? Right? So that that is, it, it really is almost... Um, formulaic in that you can create a, a, a video game or some kind of board game for entrepreneurs. Like if you can get to hundred pitches and implement some sort of iteration and learning within those pitches to keep improving it, like your chances to, to 
raise funding and, and to and to do those kinds of things is, is going to go up exponentially. It's just ninety five plus percent of founders will give up after hearing twenty knows. Yeah. And I get it. It's it's soul crushing. <laughs> <clears throat> Every time I've pitched for funding, I've just kind of and maybe this is what helps me, is I'm like, I'm planning on the first fifty being no. Like they're just going to say no because I'm not good at my pitch yet. It's not super dialed. I think that's what's also hard to your point, which is you do 100, and it's usually kind of once you get the rhythm. Like those first 10, I'm like, geez, these people probably think I'm such an idiot. But I'm like yeah. still trying to figure out the flow, the cadence. Even when like uh, Pillicube is doing a round right now, and like we hired a group who's like, you know, known in the space as like, this is the group that you hired to make your deck. and help you with your storytelling and all that okay. even still like you gotta you gotta get in that flow and you gotta get that that kind of like pacing and and you come up with like really good phrases like oh man that hit like i could see in their yep. eyes when i said that it was like okay i've connected um, exactly but yeah it's it's so hard it's uh, i think that's actually the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is having a vision on things and everyone is telling you your vision is stupid uh yep. or or just they don't get it they're like i don't i don't understand it and and my phrase is always like good ideas look like good ideas bad ideas and amazing ideas both look like bad ideas and so that's yes. why it's really hard it's hard to hold true it to is. a vision that looks it's like this kind of looks stupid i don't know <laughs> so and it's only the only way to really start to because a lot of the feedback that you get right you should implement but the vast majority of it, you should just ignore, right? Yeah. But those are those are things that, yeah, you really only get with reps. I mean, it's like anything. It's like it's yeah. just it's like you know, being an athlete. You just have to get reps in order to figure those things out. Because one of the one of the the first things that we see that first time entrepreneurs will have trouble with is they're like, hey, well, we just talk talk to two mentors, right? Two successful entrepreneurs, two multi time entrepreneurs. They know much more about entrepreneurship than I do, and they told me totally opposite things. Right? And this is super yeah. common. They're like, yep. they gave me totally opposite feedback. One said I should double down on this. One said I should forget that and double down on this thing. And like that, that's just reality, right? There's no one path. Yeah. You just but the only way to start actually determining and figuring out this this you know the vision and and figuring out what you you know just just seeing these patterns is just to, to pitch a lot of people to talk to a lot of people even if if somebody's giving you feedback that you think is the dumbest thing you've ever heard like hear it through right don't argue um because maybe you'll hear that same feedback a couple times you know, this weekend, and then maybe it won't be the worst feedback in the world. But it, it's just, yeah, it's those reps. And but it is really, really hard, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, to get those reps. Because Jay, one of the other things is a lot of them will, you know, as you said, the first ten pitches or so, you're just tuning it in, right? You're trying to to just figure out what the cadence is. And most first-time entrepreneurs will go after their top investors first. Right, yeah. you should go be going after your low. You should rank all of the investors that you want to pitch, and the lowest value ones should be the ones going first because that is sort of your practice reps. Yeah, I love that. 
No, that's that's such a great point. Such a good reminder of, you know, just there's so many pieces of it and uh, things to improve on. I, th- I think that's really good advice. Um, what are some of the things that as you look at, you know, um, all these different companies and, and, and you've seen so many founding stories, uh, do you have any soapbox things that, that you kind of are like, man, I'm so tired of everyone saying this. <laughs> like I, I actually read an article you, or a, a post you wrote about, uh, you know, the advantages of being late. And I was just like, yeah, this is so great. Um, cause I get so tired of everyone being obsessed with first mover advantage and it's like, it's just yeah. so often not true. Like, yes, there's every once in a while where it happens, but like the vast majority of the time it's not any other things that as you talk to founders, you're like, find yourself going back to like, this is a soapbox item. I have to keep going back to cause for some reason it won't die. This dumb idea. <laughs> Yeah, so that that that's one of them, which is yeah, just pe- a lot of people put put way too much stock into the idea, right? All of the value in any company, it's not in the idea, it's in the evolution of an idea in response to customer and market feedback. That's all of the value is created there, right? I can come up with an idea right now. Okay, I think an AI can build us a rocket ship, and you know what? That probably will be a reality in 10 years or something, right? But what is the value of that? It's nothing. It's all in the iteration and just figuring out actually how to do it. And I always bring up the Winklevoss twins as sort of the example here, right? What was their idea? Their idea was a social network for universities, which at the time was a terrible idea. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You're creating a social network. Like the, the, the whole advertising side of things and social networks didn't exist at that point. So it's like, all right, let's create a free uh, way for people to use up a lot of bandwidth. And these people are among, they have among the, the least amount of disposable income of any, of any customer, right? Uh, college students. So the other one that I would say is uh, the lack of a co-founder. So the amount of people that come to us and say, look, I have this amazing idea. And it's not just an idea. I've actually done the work, right? I've done the research. I've, I've talked to people. I've done all of these things. But the only thing that's keeping me from actually going out there and, and incorporating and make this, making this a real business is to have, you know, it's usually the technical co-founder, right? If they're talking about software. Yeah. Um, and that is a really great excuse for any non-technical person to just never get started. Yeah. Um, people treat looking for a co-founder as if it's like looking for a personal assistant. You know, they like, here's my job description. I need to be good at this, this, and that. And yeah. that's not like, <laughs> there's no excuse now, no matter what. Trust me, I'm not the most technical person in the world, but I can go and I can hack together a couple different tools to get something out there that's presentable to the world and start making progress and start getting users and just start getting attention. Right. And it's the process of actually going out there and building something as far as you possibly can with the skill set that you have. Like, guess what's going to happen when you, when you do that? Right. That's when people are going to start reaching out and being like, Hey, like, that's pretty cool. I, I always had an idea like that. Or, or, you know, when yeah. you start to sell into corporations or something, like, you're, that is how these, you know, like lucky moments <laughs> start to come into play. 
is when you actually start building something and, and getting into the market and talking about it and blogging about it, and, um, you know, that's when you're going to run into other people that share the same vision as you. And that's where usually the co-founder relationships come. So that's kind of the big soapbox item that I would say is that, yeah, if you're any founder out there who is really waiting to pull the trigger, so to speak, on you know, announcing what you're doing publicly or, or, or anything like that, because you just don't think the team's in place. Like that's totally normal. Um, the people that find the team are the ones that go out there and just start building and then the team will find you. Yep. No, I, the, that is definitely, I think what you said is so true. And mine is probably the not wanting to talk about it which I think is a piece of what you said. Like just when people are like, ah, you know, I, I can't tell you what I'm doing. And it's like, dude, if you think everyone's going to sign an NDA to talk to you, um, I mean, you're just crazy. Like it's going to just be so slow. It's going to take forever. And it's, I don't know what, I, th- I feel like it's died down. I don't know. Maybe it hasn't. I feel like it's not as much as it once was, but it still blows me away how many people are trying to like really keep quiet. And I'm like, Okay, that's yeah, that's going to be a fun process for you. I, it's probably applicable to maybe so stealth mode, right? Yeah, um, it, it's probably applicable to maybe like one to two percent of startups. Yeah, are really building like I don't know, you're building like defense stuff or something like crazy, right? Um, but yeah, for 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 the rest of us, it is not it's not relevant. Like you have to, the way that you will find like, at, all right, as a founder, your job is to build a following around a vision that you have. Right. Yeah. Part of that following, a, a lot of people will just distill it as, Oh, I need to raise money. Right. Well, that's just one part of it. Even part of raising money, you need to build, like you're not going to be competing with other large companies and trying to attract talent. Um, so every pitch that you do, everything that you're doing is not just attracting investment, it's attracting talent, it's attracting initial customers, it's attracting other people that want to partner with you. So every minute that you're not just getting out there and talking about what you're doing is, is sort of a waste, right? And this is another thing that we work with founders a lot where they're like, hey, I have this opportunity to pitch next week, but I'm not raising funding, so I'm not going to do it. I'm like, no, go out there and pitch instead of asking for, oh, I'm raising $500,000 for X, Y, and Z. Like, no, I'm looking for people that are really passionate about solving this problem, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe they're not in the audience, but if you make it super, super clear, it's a game of telephone where every, with everybody that you talk about your company with, right? Even if the person you're talking about your company with at that time, you know that they not going to be able to help you in any way if you can describe it to them super succinctly then they'll be able to transfer that to the people that they know and people that they know right and then this game of telephone goes on and and that's that really is where we see like the founders that are successful in our programs are the ones that are out there talking about what they're doing in a very clear and succinct way with very clear asks like as much as possible yeah. And that just, if you think about it, you're just casting a net. And if you think about it, it's, it's, you're just constantly casting a larger and larger net. And, you know, a lot of people refer to it as luck, you know, just, oh, there was this lucky circumstance with this person that I talked to last week happened to know this other person. But 
that lucky circumstance wouldn't have happened if if you didn't sort of have that clear message when you met them. Right. Yeah. No, it's so true. Um, man, it's it's something that's hard to get going on, but once you do, you just kind of, it's amazing some of those times. Um, we're working on a really cool product for PillCube that's a sleep tech product. And forever, I was like, you know, talking about it and kept saying, like, this is my vision for it. And it will include this AI technology um, that helps with sleep. And and I was like, but we don't have that piece. We have all the other pieces. Uh, and it was funny, just as I talked, you know, you connect to this person and connect to this person. Like you said, yeah, that could be luck. But when you're doing that every day, all of a sudden, it was amazing how through like four random connections, it was like, oh, have you talked yeah. to this group in Korea that is doing exactly what you're talking about? And I was like, oh, no, connected with them. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is literally what I had in my head. And they were like, we just want to license. We want to license you the technology. We want you know to work with a partner. We're not launching our own stuff. And so it was really interesting to see that again in fruition, come to fruition of you know just talking about it and getting it out there. So, yeah, and a lot of times with things like that too, it's not. So we have a lot of in, uh, founders in our programs who are. One of the things that we tell them is, "Hey, go create a, a target investor list, right?" And usually they'll come back to us with like five investors, and it's like they're people that invested in the direct competitor, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and we're like, "Look, you gotta, you know, take the blue pill, the red pill. I don't remember what it was in the Matrix, but it's like you gotta expand your mind a little bit, right?" In, investors are investing on theses, and usually their theses. Some of them will be investing in, okay, well, AI sleep tech, right? But it probably was a larger thing where people were looking at, okay, well, big data um, and wellness, yeah, right, and and those kinds of things, and that's probably would be my guess as to like how some of those connections were made. So. Yeah, it's sort of understanding not not just like, yes, everybody always looks to see when they do competitive research, they'll see who is my direct competitor, right? Who do I need to crush? Um, but really, they should be looking more kind of holistically at saying, all right, what is the bigger market that I'm in? Um, which is in this, you know, in this case would be more like wellness, right? And then what is kind yeah. of the technology component? It used to be called big data. Now it's sort of just being called AI and for sometimes uh, legitimate reasons for sometimes not marketing reasons, but it's essentially just how can you take the data of a lot of people and deliver it to consumers with apps in a way that makes their lives a lot better. Right. Yeah. And there's the number of investors interested in that is, is, is huge. Yeah. Right. So I, I think it's, it's, yeah, we, we, we train founders a lot to kind of think more like investors because especially first time founders come into things you know it, it's they in, in a very kind of computational way where they're like this is my market this is my niche I need to crush this person I need to crush that person and that's it where it, it's it's much more useful to think of it a little bit bigger into how you know, the larger space is operating and the investors that are interested in that larger space. Because if you can get an investor that's interested in, let's say, um, wellness, right, interested in something 
that's a little bit smaller and kind of sell them on the, the vision that, hey, this is actually going to make up a very much bigger part of this bigger market in a couple of years. Like that's where it's like the rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, well, you, you made a comment uh, about luck and I've been reading a book about luck and I see your books uh, behind their range being one of my, one of my favorites. Uh, what are some of your favorite books for entrepreneurs? Uh, so I'm a, I'm a new father the last couple of years. So to be honest with you, I haven't <laughs> had a lot of time to be reading a lot of books, but range, range is one that you, you notice there that, that I'm a big proponent of just because I, I try to hire people in our company that have range. Yeah. Right. Because as an entrepreneur, it's all about just being able to do like specialists generally don't make great entrepreneurs. Uh, it's your ability to use left brain, right brain, your ability to look at a contract, then go help write some copy, then go do all these different things, right? And, yeah. and I feel like that is where our uh, our economy, honestly, is heading with AI and, and just in general, because they're super, super specialized tasks that I was sort of trained for when I was in college, right? Like, hey, like, just become the world's best, like, email marketer, like, those things are now so well documented that AI is going to take those things over like pretty damn quickly. Yeah. It's kind of more the human element, the range side totally. of things. I think is 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 what is going to sort of define the next the next wave of, of workers uh, in our economy. And um, yeah, to be honest, I just I I don't have a lot of time to read these days. So true. Uh, what have you learned about being a dad? Uh, that has helped you, or what have you learned as a dad that has helped you in your career? Uh, I haven't been a dad for that long, so you're officially the first person to ask me that question. <laughs> um, what have I learned? A dad that's helped me in my career. Honestly, being a dad now has, and, and I got a late start, okay? I'm 41, and my daughter's not even two yet. So I was the kind of guy who was definitely very much like focused on career and stuff like that before I wanted to have a child. Uh, so now I feel like being a dad has made me incredibly more efficient and ruthless with my time. Yeah. Um, whereas I used to allow a lot of other like sort of, hey, here's a here's a uh, a meeting where maybe there's no clear agenda or outcome. Um, and now I'm just like, no. Right. So that's a good thing. The ability to say no, um, is super, yeah. super, super important. So I'd say that's, yeah, just being super more diligent and trying to be ultra efficient with my time. Yeah. It's amazing how it puts a lot of that in perspective of like, Okay, I gotta I gotta go to work and get it done so I can come home and spend time with with the family. So I also love yeah, the kids. And as I care. said before, it, it it's it's almost how many? Sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say I I also love that like my kids could care less. Like anytime oh. you come in with an ego, they're just like, <laughs> yeah, dad, I don't care what you do, you're still just dad. <laughs> and it kind of yeah. Like, yeah, okay, fair point. 
That's true. So. They keep you in check. But yeah, I, I was just going to say that, you know, I was saying with entrepreneurs need to do like left brain, right brain. And uh, being a father, it's even more extreme, right? It's like, okay, on one side, I'm trying to entertain the toddler. And then a couple of minutes later, I'm running like a sales call. Right. And I don't know, maybe there's more, uh, <laughs> there's more commonalities between those two things than I, than I realized, but it's usually, um, yeah, it's quite a shift to jump. to. Yeah. So fun. Well, super exciting uh, to talk to you. Thank you for taking time. I wrote down tons of notes, great quotes uh, that I'll, I'll, when I share with other people, I will attribute to you because uh, there were some great nuggets of wisdom in there amongst a bunch of great learning. So thank you so much for coming on and being willing to, to share you. with us your experience. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. 